Amen. Well, good morning, Park. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's a joy to be able to bring the word to you this morning. Um, like Andrew said, it's really weird doing this with very few people in the room, but soon we'll be gathering together. We're going to continue walking through the book of Philippians, so if you have your Bible with you, open up to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 12. I'll give you time to open there, and we're going to read through this section. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 26. We'll read through it, and then we'll just kind of walk through it and see what Paul tells us about how he views the world and how he views events in his life. And I will encourage us this morning to have that same lens through which we see the world. So follow along with me. This is Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. Let's pray together before we dive into this passage. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Paul and his letters that give us a glimpse into his mindset, a glimpse into his life, a glimpse into how he viewed the world. Lord, we pray that your words would sink deep into us this morning. Help me speak with clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse 12, Paul opens up. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to Paul? Paul is imprisoned, and his imprisonment was a wrongful one. At the end of Acts 21, Paul's arrested in Jerusalem for a riot that is caused in the temple. They arrest him under a misguided thought that he was an Egyptian revolutionary. So after they capture him, the guards lead him away, and 
Paul's asking, what are you doing? And they're like, well, aren't you the Egyptian who led a revolution? And he's like, no, I'm not. And they were surprised. They gave him a chance to speak, but he was wrongfully accused and wrongfully detained. He exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And this left his captors with no choice but to transport him under guard as a prisoner to Rome in order for his case to be heard before the imperial court. Now, news of his arrest would have spread as he was well-known among early churches. He started most of them. This letter probably served two functions in relation to his imprisonment. One, he wanted to encourage the people in Philippi that even though he had been wrongfully imprisoned and he was currently in prison, he was doing great. Secondly, to let them know how his imprisonment and trial were shaping up. Paul would definitely have been probably the most well-known Christian to be imprisoned for his beliefs at that point. He was also a Roman citizen. There's a possibility that his trial could have set somewhat of a legal precedent for all future Christian Roman citizens who may happen to be arrested at that point. Most of the churches that he had planted and his close friends were Roman citizens, and the results of his trial would have probably been at the top of their minds. Paul lets them know that he is okay and that things are going well. He offers them his perspective on the seemingly unfortunate event of his captivity. And as we look farther, we'll see that it's the same perspective that we need to have in our situations in life. Paul shares that he sees his imprisonment as a good thing. He's telling them not to worry. It's an amazing attitude when you consider a situation. Not only is he not complaining about his position, he seems to be encouraged by what's happening. He shares his reasons, and in those reasons we see a unique lens through which Paul sees the world and the circumstances that arise in his life. And I think we should have the same lenses. The first reason why he is encouraged is the overall idea that his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel. That is his life's primary care, focus, and direction. If his imprisonment advances the gospel, then bring on imprisonment. That's his mindset. If persecution advances the gospel through him, then bring on persecution. Whatever can advance the gospel through him to others is what this man is all about. And it should be what we as Christians are all about. I'm trying after looking at this passage to take circumstances of my life and ask that question, does this serve to advance the gospel? If yes, bring it on. No matter what the situation, if no, how can I make it advance the gospel? He gets a little more specific and shares two exact ways that his imprisonment is advancing the gospel. The first is in verse 13. 
It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. His imprisonment has given him the opportunity to share the gospel with the entire Roman guard. An amazing demonstration of his conviction and a life of grace and forgiveness. He has spent his time during wrongful imprisonment, not complaining about it and becoming bitter about his circumstances, but trying to help every guard he meets understand that he is there because of Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. The next reason is in 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the gospel without fear. People throughout Rome and elsewhere were encouraged by his imprisonment to speak the gospel more boldly. Stop for a second and realize how strange that sounds. Most of the brothers, having become confident by his imprisonment, that's a strange result. Paul's imprisonment all the dangers that might come along with it, all the consequences that might flow from it, not only did this not discourage them from preaching the gospel, it made them even more confident to do it. And Paul is encouraged because his imprisonment has made others more confident to preach the gospel. Again, think of your own life. How sold out are you to seeing the influence and the spread of the gospel in the world around you? Paul's attitude's amazing. He may be wrongfully in prison, but if it helps to make people more confident in the gospel, then he is encouraged by it. <laughs> it's amazing. Now, in this point, he goes into a little more detail. There are two groups that are more confident to spread the gospel, and he explains them to us. There's one for good motives and one for bad. Both are proclaiming Christ and spreading the gospel. Verses 15 through 18, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict, afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So there's two groups. We'll call them the lovers and the haters. There is a group that preached the gospel out of love for Paul, probably wanting to honor his life's work and his life's pursuit and just honor him in general. They had pure motives, wanting nothing more but the spread of the gospel, and news of Paul's imprisonment fired them up to pursue evangelism with even more confidence and passion. But then there's a second group, a group proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition with an intent to afflict Paul during his imprisonment. 
This made me think, how can someone preach the gospel selfishly with the intent being to afflict Paul during his imprisonment? There are a couple possibilities. One, during the early church, we see pictures that there were multiple uh, factions or ministries with prominent leaders and speakers in charge of them. This tended to create cliques among the local churches, and we see this a lot today. It still happens. People have their favorite authors, their favorite podcasts, their favorite preachers, and it creates cliques of people that listen to the same person. We see in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, we see that this was causing a great deal of division in the church. The example there was between Paul and another famous teacher called Apollos. The church would have arguments on who was better, Paul or Apollos. And Paul reprimands them for saying this. And he tells them the only thing that matters is the fruit of the gospel. So one possibility is that some of these other ministries, for lack of a better term, was eager to become more active in their message because now Paul was out of the picture and they may have seen it as their chance to get ahead. There may have been a sense of competition among them and they figured this was their chance to jump out ahead of Paul's ministry because he was out of the running. There's another possibility, and it could even be wound up in the same. There were those in the early church who disagreed with Paul's theology. There were definite theological disagreements. There's many parts of the book of Acts where they have meetings talking about Paul's theology, and there's quite a bit of conflict around his ministry. The news that Paul was now in prison could easily have been used to bolster their own position, to seem more legitimate than Paul's. And they would have seen this moment as their chance, again, to pull ahead and for their position to look better because their leaders weren't in prison. Paul was. But Paul's response and his grace is amazing. Does he denounce them or get upset about what they're doing? Not really. He simply says, yeah, their motives are wrong, but hey, they're preaching the gospel, so that's great. It's interesting how Paul takes no personal offense in what other ministries and teachers are doing. Think what Paul has gone through. He's taken no offense at those who opposed him and in fact seems encouraged by their actions, even though their intention is to afflict him. This is a man whose life is marked with forgiveness, grace, and pursuit of the gospel. Even if they're trying to defend me, if they're preaching the gospel, go for it. I am encouraged. An interesting man. He goes on to verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul here is seeing a real practical impact of their prayers and of the work of the Spirit. It's most commonly thought that Paul is referring to his imprisonment and trial. 
He was confident that he would be delivered. There are some translations that say he believes this will lead to his vindication. His wrongful imprisonment will be brought to light. Paul sees the prayers of his friends and the spirit of Jesus are practically working to bring about his deliverance in this trial. But he adds an interesting clarification. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Verse 20 and 21. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's comments are amazing to me. He says, I'm confident that your prayers and the Spirit is working, and I know that I will be delivered. But there's something even more important. He has such a heavenly mindset here, an unnatural mindset. His hope, and to him the really important thing, is that in his body, always, Christ would be honored. Whatever the verdict on his body, death or life, freedom or conviction, Christ would be honored. Think about this. He, he is encouraging them not to worry about the outcome because he knows that no matter what the outcome, death or life, the way he has lived his life and the way he has conducted himself while in captivity, will glorify Christ. Whether freedom or death sentence, Christ will be glorified, so don't worry. Now, here's the best part. Paul tells us how to do this in our lives. There are two realms in which Christ is glorified, and these two realms encompass everything that we ever experience, life and death. Paul tells us how this is accomplished in our lives. He tells us how we can glorify God in life and in death, and he does it in the fewest words possible. To live is Christ, to die is gain. These are the lenses through which Paul sees the world. And we'll take the first one. To live is Christ. You can see the parallel that he's building. Looking at the end of 20 and into 21, you see the two categories. Christ will be honored in me, whether by life or by death. Living and dying. And then he fills those in. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's how he will be glorified in his life and his death. Let's look at the first one. To live is Christ. Paul lived a life of singular devotion. And if we want to glorify Christ in our life, we should too. Now a statement 
like to live as Christ deserves a lot of meditation, probably a life's worth. Singular devotion to something is not always good. In fact, most often it's harmful. We might more commonly call it obsession. This would probably bring up some more of the negative connotations that I'm getting at. We humans are quick to be obsessive and singularly devoted to anything that seems to grab us. It's different for everyone. It depends on how we're wired. Generally, if you take anything, even good things, and you make it the singular passion and devotion and obsession of your life, things are going to get ugly. All things in moderation, as they say. When we as people become solely devoted to something, we develop almost a sense of tunnel vision. And the rest of life tends to fade away and get very out of focus. All of life fades and becomes secondary to this one consuming passion. And this can and has caused unspeakable damage to humanity throughout history. It's destroyed families, destroyed relationships, it's destroyed lives. It's common. Happens every day. To live is Christ. Is that healthy? I would say it is, and here's why. When it comes to moderation of devotion or passion, the Christian does not need to worry in regards to Christ. And here's why. Christ and devotion to him encompasses all of life. Life surrounding your devotion does not fade away. It becomes even more vivid even more real, even more clear. Correct devotion to Christ causes you to examine every aspect of your life and then take his teachings, his spirit, and press it into every area. You saturate it. Life becomes more real, more sweet, because to live as Christ means every aspect of your life comes more and more into alignment with how God wants you to exist. The longer you see all of life through the lens of devotion to Christ, the more you end up looking like him and living like him. And there was nothing out of focus with Christ. And here's the cool thing. The more you do that, the more people see Christ through you. And it helps them see him better. To live is Christ. Paul tells us what that means for him in 21. To continue his ministry, have more fruitful labor, but that might not be what it means for you. It might be something completely different. Devotion to Christ encompasses all of life. So its main pursuit might be as different as there are the amount of different people. There are no limits. 
For you, if you are a stay-at-home mom, it might mean giving your kids a vision of God and the gospel every day. For a craftsman, you work unto the Lord. You make every cut, joint, paint swipe, or installation as if you are presenting it to God at the end. Because you are. Medical professionals, it may mean that you spend a little more time than you should comforting those in pain. People in business, you devote your days to honest business practices and managing with grace and integrity so that your employees see Christ through you. No, to live as Christ does not distort life in any way. It clarifies it. It gives it meaning. And that is how we glorify Christ in our body while we live. Next realm, death. To die is gain. If I want to glorify Christ in my life, I center everything in my life around him and what he has called me to do. If I want to glorify Christ in my death, I must view death as gain. Easier said than experienced. But what a testimony if you view death as gain. Take the other side of it. What kind of testimony would I have at the end of life if I spent my entire life devoted to speaking of the forgiveness offered in Christ, my reconciliation with God and my assurance of eternal salvation and eternal life. And then in my final days, I approached death with uncontrolled fear. Death is not a tragedy for the Christian. It's a victory. Jesus said this in John 8, 51, and it should stick with you. It was a quick phrase, but unbelievable weight. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. <laughs> death is not the end, but the beginning for a Christian. That is when your true joy starts. Unhindered by a weak and physical body, the joy that awaits us on the other side of death is beyond imagination. To die is nothing but pure, joyful, unhindered, unending gain for those who are in Christ. To glorify Christ in your death, you live and approach death as gain, not with fear. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, 
and kept in heaven for you. There is so much more in store for us at the moment of death. A life seeing death as gain is a radical thing. It's something that can only be had through Christ. What would the world look like if what laid beyond death was looked forward to and not feared? One thing I had is I think greed would fade away. Why work so hard to get things and hoard things here when at death you will inherit everything? Christians should die well. We were at a conference about a year ago, and there was a pastor telling a story. I forget even what the sermon was about. This is the only thing I remember of it. But he was talking about explaining death to his little kid. And he explained it this way. You know sometimes when we're driving home from a trip and you fall asleep in the car? And then we carry you to your room and lay you down in bed without you waking up. And then in the morning, you open your eyes and you're home. That's what it's like. It's like coming home. Even after a comfortable, good, joyful life, Death will be like waking from a nightmare and realizing it's all okay. There will be no more pain, no more cancer, no more wheelchairs, no more sickness or medication. I am a type 1 diabetic. And at the moment I die, I will never give myself insulin again. The moment I die, I will never be thinking about what my blood sugar is again. When you die, there will be no more injustice. There will be no more pandemics. There will be no more social distancing. There will be no more fear. There will be no more anxiety. There will be no more unknown. To die is gain. But it's so beautiful, even after all of that, at the end, Paul is torn. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. <laughs> My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul was torn. His love for his friends and his fellow churches was so great that he was honestly torn between the two. And he settled on staying for their joy. 
It's an amazing amount of love considering what awaits us after death and how close he was. As we close out this morning, we're going to take communion together. So if you have those at home, you can get your elements together. One of the ways that we weekly remember what Christ did for us, it's a way of helping us to keep our life being to live as Christ, is to take communion together. We are all longing when we can gather together again and take it physically together. But for now, we're apart. At the end of Jesus' life, as they were having the Passover together, he took the bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. It is what purchased our souls. And he said, every time you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood. And this blood seals the covenant that he's made with you. What it does, it seals the guarantee for you that death is gain. And every time you take it, remember that. And live that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's clarity here. <laughs> he's not always clear. A lot of times he's hard to follow. But to live is Christ and to die is gain are the clearest words. Lord, we ask that you would help us live that way, week in, week out. No matter what our situation, no matter what our call in life, we all can live as Christ, and we can die as if it's gain. In Jesus' name, amen.